Walter Balfour, the team of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. He's a contributor both to the Hardball Times and also the boss of the Fangraphs newsletter, making your debut appearance on the program is Emma Bacheleri. Emma Bacheleri is the guest. Bacheleri has assembled a rather impressive collection of writing credits relative to her youth, having contributed to the Charlotte Observer, the McClatchy family of papers, and also the Chronicle, which is the student newspaper of Duke University, from which she is about to graduate before entering the terrifying world. And what follows, I ask Bacheleri about, and she delivers lucid answers regarding the sporting landscape of North Carolina, the Cleveland baseball teams of the mid-aughts, and also the Fangraphs newsletter, regarding which the both of us provide shameless promotion. Shameless promotion is to follow. As are more delights featuring the guest, Emma Bacheleri. But first, another brand of shameless promotion. This is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, which I'll say every time just like that, SeatGeek. SeatGeek is both an internet website and also mobile application that renders the purchase of tickets both less expensive and also easier than ever before in history. Are you familiar with how the purchase of tickets is often full of work and hassle? And when you're shopping for them, for example, what SeatGeek has done is to address both the work part and also the hassle. How do they do it? Well, by one means. This means is to pull tickets, to aggregate tickets from other sites all into one place so that it's possible to see all of the prices of tickets simultaneously. SeatGeek also allows you to set alerts so there's a particular event about which you're particularly excited. You can set an alert. SeatGeek will inform you when the relevant prices fall. Because you're a nerd, you might also like to know that SeatGeek assigns every seat or every ticket for every seat a grade based on the value so you can see if certain tickets are underpriced. And you can exploit the inefficiency, not unlike a well-run Major League Baseball club. Finally, SeatGeek is known for its honesty regarding prices. And unlike StubHub, for example, which I'll say like this, StubHub, unlike that, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end through to the checkout until you've purchased it. Listeners who've made it this far in the introduction are rewarded are rewarded by a deal, then get $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you do it. You download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab in the app, click add a promo code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. All you need to do is download that free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today and or at your nearest leisure. With which utterance, the introduction is now over. Let us turn to the conversation at hand. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? The THT and Fangraphs contributor, Emma Bacheleri. When does it begin? Right now. <laughs> is that all right with you? Yeah, I'm uh, familiar with the podcast. Um, yeah, I've uh, seen you've, how you do things. So. You've listened once before, at least? A, a few a few times. All right, well, I apologize for however much time you waste on it. However, <laughs> I don't think that this could I could be I could be held accountable for it in a court of law. It seems to be a voluntary act on your part. It, it is, is yes. That, all right, yeah, all right, very good. Uh, at least that we have... Um, We've established that. The other thing is the er, the first questions that I ask you will be – they will be miserable, terrible questions. I mean just in their banality. Okay. Um, All right. I'm because, prepared. Because you and I are meeting each other for the first time. And in truth, when people meet each other for the first time, the questions are miserable for their banality. 
Yes, that that is true. Yeah, because you have to find out some very basic things. Like, for example, uh, Emma, uh, either Bachelieri or Bachelieri. We could do one. I think that you, I think you go by Emma Bach a lot, though. I do. Well, usually just Batch, yeah. But okay. uh, that's my Facebook name and such, yeah. I wanted to say, so that's a, so that's you're an Italian person who has shortened her name so that um, Anglo mouths can better handle it. Um, uh, I wouldn't go that far. I'd say I'm, well, I'm going that far. You okay. don't have to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have you don't have to indict all Anglo people. Just me. Just me who's doing it. Okay. But what I was going to say is that so my grandfather, whose last name is Sistuli, just like mine. When he shortened his name, or I guess like his nickname in the military, he went with Sisti, which I don't know. Is that the one you would choose if your last name were Sistuli? I, I, I don't think it is. That's an interesting choice. Yeah, it's yeah. really just the word Sist with a Y at the end, which I That's... guess my last name is the word Sist with Uli at the end. It's not a great improvement. <laughs> uh, I'd also really... say I'm not sure if Sistuli needs that treatment. It feels pretty intuitive to me in its pronunciation. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And, of course, I had nothing to do. I'm 0% responsible for the name, um, but I, I've re- retained it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. And he, like, seems like even, like, borderline proud of it, and I'm, and which is fine because he's 95, so he can do whatever he wants. Um, but anyways, there are ways, yes, that Italian people shorten their names. But uh, an interesting thing about you, I think, is that you're an Italian person who I believe not only currently resides but also uh, grew up in – well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this this is a – a different sort of question too, but I was going to say the South. You live in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. You grew up in North Carolina. I did. Yeah. In Charlotte, maybe. Yes, that's correct. Um, and you currently go to school at Duke University, which is located in Raleigh. Durham, which is very close. Which is very yes. close to Durham. Okay. You are. Uh, you reside in the Research Triangle. Yes, correct. Okay. Do, uh, do you ever conduct research? Uh, not at all. Nope. <laughs> not the way my academic. Uh, talents lie. Oh, really? Where, where, where are your academic talents? Uh, talent is kind of a strong word, Okay. Uh, but I, uh, I'm a history major. Okay. All right. That's fine. Well, you could do... Anyway, we'll get to the... Yeah, that's actually later, that's so. kind of a lie that I don't do research. I have a 25-page research paper due Friday, so... Oh, man, that's a real menace. Yeah. We could have put it together. You got a, uh, any sort of bibliography attached to that paper? Uh... It's a work in progress. Okay, all right. Have you utilized the word IBID at all to cite any of your sources? Not so far. Okay, well, good luck. Thank you. It is two days away. I will say that one of the greatest things about being an adult is not necessarily – all right, so it's not necessarily that – and by adult, I mean person who has uh, escaped academia (laughs) – is not necessarily that you're not – I mean, of course, when as as a person who's working – one is forced always, and of course, you, you seem to have quite a bit of experience in journalism apart from your your academic studies. So you m- might be well aware of this already. The nice thing, and maybe you can sense this already, is that when I, so anytime you do work, is that you you know that it is for it is leading to something. The difficulty, and I don't know how you feel about this or not, when you are writing academic papers. There's always the sense to it that this is merely an experiment. This is merely for practice. Because even what, best case scenario, it's going to be published in a journal, like a a, um, uh, a discipline-specific journal. Yeah, it's all operating within this tiny closed circle. And, uh, yeah, I absolutely get that feeling. And I'm very excited to escape that part of this. 
Yeah, I know that even I was always wondering because my um, I did not. I mean, I got a master's degree, but my wife was in a PhD program at Wisconsin, and always she was writing papers. I think that she was disillusioned by it too. But some people seem to be very excited about it. I think that requires a certain type of like intrinsic motivation of learning for learning's sake that I just don't have. (laughs) (laughs) Is it mostly just cash money that's on your mind, Emma? Yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Um, That's true. Not unlike Wu-Tang, cash rules everything around you as well. Yep. Yeah, all right, that's fair enough. We established that. Duke, uh, I have some unfounded opinions, um, or at least ideas in my head about Duke University. Yeah, Um, a lot of Mostly, mostly I imagine a lot. I mostly imagine clean or young men with short hair wearing pink Izod shirts. Is there any? Is there any truth to that? Well, actually, it's funny that you say that. There is a uh, a popular Tumblr that's Duke boys love pink shorts, not pink shirts. No way. See, I do not know even the existence of it. This is purely a. Um, and this is purely a bias (laughs) or idea that I've have established on my own, not even having ever been to. Uh, Raleigh or Durham or any of the research triangle, really. Yeah, the lots of lots of pink shorts, lots of boat shoes, lots of boat shoes. Mm. Um, yeah, More boats or boat shoes, or what is the ratio of 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 boat shoes to boats? That's a great question, and uh, I'd say it's you know uh, undefined because there are no boats, as far as I can tell, and no boats. just boat shoes everywhere. Is it possible to have a properly aristocratic? institution of higher learning without having any sort of um, sailing or rowing team? Well, actually, yeah, now that I've said that, there are boats because there's a crew team, and mm-hmm. I suppose they have boats that they use yeah, to but, row. Yeah, they're going to be a real, <laughs> sh- a real <laughs> sh- crew team if they don't. <laughs> no, yeah, no, well, this is I've never thought about this before, but I have no idea where they row or how they row because there's not really water around here. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, well, you will. I'm sure it's going to really be bugging you. Um, the so yeah, and that's like so like when you when you are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for example, the the location it is it's almost difficult to escape um, the the location I, I guess you'd say of the of the crew team there because it is of course it's located right on the River Charles and it is uh, it's there for everyone to see. But it seems like what you're suggesting is there's maybe there's sort of a clandestine location. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is really – they have kind of, a, I guess, like an underground vibe to them. They don't have the traditional, like, prominence that you'd expect to have at a preppy school. Yeah. Okay, so that is fairly accurate then uh, with pink shirts and this sort of thing. Yes. Okay. All right. That's, this is all I know of Duke. There's, I mean, that really in uh, Mike Krzyzewski and then sorted lacrosse-related stories. Yeah, that, that's – Pretty much in a nutshell, there are some other things, but you, you really got the big point. I really nailed it down. Very good. Yeah. And what are you You in your last year there? I am. I have less than a month. So you did not find it, uh, you did not find it objectionable then? You've survived through, through your uh, year four? I have, yeah. I don't know. I have somewhat mixed feelings about it. Um, yeah. and I think a lot of people do. Um, and overall, I'm very happy to have been here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, there's a lot of great things going for it and also a lot of really pretentious, awful, rich kids from the Northeast going to it. Oh, jerks in the Northeast <laughs> ruining everything, isn't it? I know, actually, I have a I have a cousin uh, who attended Clemson. I, maybe he's in his last month there as well. And uh, he belongs to a fraternity. He's a nice young man. 
uh, belongs to a fraternity that I believe is populated almost exclusively by people from New England. Is that a thing that exists is it at other schools as well? Yeah, they definitely have like regional um, leanings. Like there's one that's very West Coast and there are a couple that are Northeast leaning with like different pockets. Like there's one that's like all kids from New York City private schools and one that's a little broader. And then there's like a Southern fraternity. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so they definitely draw their lines along regional uh, borders. So do you occupy a strange demographic then by being a person who's actually from North Carolina or is that not very strange? Uh, not super strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I'm remembering right, the numbers go that California is the most popular state here, but North Carolina is second. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, even though I'm, I grew up in North Carolina, my family's not from North Carolina. So I don't identify as much with like a heritage of, you know, North Carolinianness. Right. And now it, it seems to me, so I have, a, um, I'm just going to tell you about all of my family members. I have a step uncle. Who mm-hmm. lives in Cary, North Carolina? Oh and, yeah, uh, yeah. And he's originally from Long Island. Um, now you mentioned- my mom's from Long Island. Oh, okay, very good. So, and and you've also mentioned that because I think in this will well, this will be revealed before long. Your family's from Cleveland, or they settled most immediately from Cleveland. Yeah. So my dad's whole side is from Cleveland, like I guess Akron specifically. Okay. Um, and my mom moved out to Ohio for college and lived in that area, but she was originally from Long Island. Okay, and so. So do you, do you feel as though there are a lot of people who have relocated to the area, is my, is my question? Oh, yeah. Well, Cary is actually, people joke that it stands for Containment Area for Relocated Yankees. No offense to your step-uncle. Um, no, it's okay. I'm going to get along. No. <laughs> but, yeah, a t- ton of people. Everyone here seems to be from somewhere else. That's actually, a, that's actually a pretty sophisticated acronym for someone to have devised. Yeah, I feel like they probably devised themselves the relocated Yankees. Oh, yeah, because they're naturally more intelligent than the, the, Is that what you're trying to suggest? That was a backward a backward compliment, I think, is what you were trying yeah. to make. Yeah. Your family, right, so you mentioned some of the Providence, but they're from uh, Cleveland, which is what this seems to be, and this is something I always like to find out when um, when I'm meeting our writers, especially uh, those writers whom I've never met before. Um, electronically, as we are right now, or mostly electronically, uh, is to sort of find out what the entry point was for the the uh, interest in the pastime at all. And it seems as though yours is sort of uh, um, unindelibly connected to Cleveland. Is that yes. is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually – this is something that I've been thinking about a lot more as I've started writing and have been asked this, and I never really had been before. Mm-hmm. Um and it's hard to pinpoint because it always, it seems like it was just sort of always part of the like fabric of everything I did. Um, but I think when I really got interested and passionate about baseball was, um, I, so I grew up a Cleveland sports fan, even though I was in North Carolina and the Cavaliers drafted LeBron James when I was eight and I got really excited and was really into that basketball season. And then when basketball season ended, I had always kind of, you know, been aware of sports, but that was the first year I'd ever gotten really invested in any sports team and needed something to do that summer of uh, 2004, and so got really into following the Indians as a way to transfer that passion, and from there just stuck with them, and that that was pretty much it. So, so what, what uh, remind us, what, who was, who were the most prominent members of that 2004 Cleveland team, the, the Indians? Uh, that I actually, I think 
2005 might have been Grady Sizemore's breakout year, the next okay. year. Yeah. And he was a really big part of um, my, like, uh, th- those early Cleveland teams for me. Um, I had a huge crush on him. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that version of Sizemore was, I mean, he, that's almost the perfect baseball player, right? Oh, yeah. He could do, I mean, I mean, you, you look at the sort of, Traditional tools. He possessed all them. Plus, he also, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have his uh, page open in front of me, but he also had other things like, uh, you know, like a good eye, um, and uh, he probably was uh, well acquitted at least early on by the defensive metrics such as they exist at the time. I mean, that was, you know, that's the ideal ball player. Yeah, I mean, I just felt like he could do absolutely everything, and mm-hmm. it was just. And not just doing it, but doing it in such an exciting way. He was just so much fun to watch. Um, ugh, that still just makes me so sad to think about what could have been. Yeah, well, so uh, what was it? What, was it uh, well, let me, I'm going to ask you about Sizemore in a moment. I want to ask you about, actually, about the, the drafting of the selection by uh, the Cleveland Cavs of LeBron James. Now, you said you became aware of that. Was that, uh, was that something you essentially digested through your like through your family. You said your dad is the one who's from Cleveland proper. Was he a big Cavs fan? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he's also baseball is also his favorite sport um, over basketball. But it was just hard not to be excited about you know a player like that. Um, and that so that was through him. I really got into it that season. Um, and then with him started following baseball with him because year. because the. the Pro sports, now you, of course, you're enjoying Cleveland sports a lot at this point, and it's not, I mean, this is very common, right, for people who come from families that have relocated from the parents' hometowns. It's not unusual at all to adopt uh, one or the other parents or, say, grandparents' sporting allegiances. But uh, I'm interested, if you would be better, obviously, characterizing it than I would. What, what is the, how would, you, how would you characterize the sporting landscape, um, especially this tension between professional and college sports, in North Carolina generally, and maybe the Charlotte area specifically? Yeah, I think um, it's changed a little in the last couple of years as the, you know, the Panthers have gotten so successful and the Hornets have kind of rebranded from the Bobcats and then started to find their niche and grow a little. Right, with Nicholas Batum at the helm? Yes, Yeah, that's very good. Um, Yeah, I I remember I I lived in Portland, Oregon when he was a rookie there, and uh, he he was a real pleasure to watch there as well. Yeah, he's a fun guy. Yeah. Um, Not a mushroom, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's yeah. a that's a joke, is what that is. I, I, I was aware. That's yeah. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, yeah, definitely. Even so, it's shifted a little. I, in from my perspective, over the last couple of years, but really, still, college sports are what dominates, um, and college basketball mostly. Um, just that. That's what everyone cares about. That's the big thing. Um, not really. People are unified in hating Duke, but between UNC, NC State, Wake Forest, to some extent, a little Clemson, um, like everyone has something. Um, and that's really the big thing. And that's what dominates the sports landscape there. Um, and for baseball, kind of a no man's land. Like, you know, I think generally the area leans Braves, but people don't really seem to care. There's not really any strong contingent for any team. Um, and yeah, that's about it where, you know, people care about the, uh, Panthers and Hornets as they do things. And like, obviously this past year with the Panthers in the Super Bowl, that was, you know, really crazy sort of feel of rallying around that team and the spirit of all that. But, 
Other than that, it's really college sports is what defines it. So if you're like a if you're in a neighborhood in Charlotte, for example, and I don't and I don't know, where, did you grow up in Charlotte proper or a uh, suburb of Charlotte or? Yeah. I don't need to know your exact mailing address or whatever. I'm just, I'm curious about this sort of like dynamics of a neighborhood in Charlotte. If you're going around, especially on maybe a a college game day uh, for basketball, you know, do you see like an NC State flag or banner in one window and then a Duke in another and then and then a UNC in in a third? Yeah, uh, very little Duke, but um, really, is it what? Is it because what? There are fewer Duke grads because it's a smaller school, or what's what's the reason for that? I think that's part of it. I think also Duke grads are less likely to stay in North Carolina. They're less likely to be from North Carolina. Right. Um, Very good. Yeah. Is, you know, as public schools, the other two draw more that are from here. And then also just the nature of that more stay here. Um, and also it's just so easy to hate Duke. Like I think there are lots of UNC and NC State fans that maybe didn't go to those schools but moved here and kind of have adopted them as their own. But no one wants to adopt Duke. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's another part of it. But yeah, you definitely see the variety. Um, and even within the same house, I know a lot of people that have a kid at one school and one kid at another and have the whole house divided act going on. So, yeah. Is there a, is there, wait, is there, is there a phenomena of self-hating Duke fans? Um, in a sense, like, okay. uh, I think maybe sort of a like begrudging, begrudgingly buying into it. Maybe is the more accurate. <laughs> like at least for me, I never thought cause I grew up hating Duke because I was a sane person growing up in North Carolina. Oh no, sure, yeah, 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 totally reasonable. I understand. I, how could you not? Um, they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but even things like I remember when I left for school, someone made a joke about like, oh, like you know, the, your perspective on it all is going to change, and I was like, no, never. And then you know, last year that Christian Leitner documentary debuted on ESPN and I loved it and thought it was just the greatest thing and I was like oh no I've come full circle like he's terrible and I'm rooting for him in this thing um yeah so I've come to embrace the parts of it I thought I could never love um and like it's very fun to be hated in this way I'm it's hard it's hard to push away oh okay oh so there's a pleasure in the uh, well, what, what do they call it? Well, okay, so you're an Italian person. There's the there's a sense of the Cosa Nostra, our thing. <laughs> yeah, is it like a it's like a weird it's like a weird privileged mafia. <laughs> it's funny you say that because they call the alumni network the Duke Mafia, um, which implies less than savory things, I guess, about what they'll do to get one another jobs and such. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> like they actually have literally taken on that image for themselves. So yes. Yeah, but oh, right. If they right, if they're adopting it, yeah. Um, although I, uh, I've been led to believe that maybe real life in the mafia is not quite as glamorous as in Mario Puzo's imagination. Yeah, I feel like that would have to be true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very good. Let's return to, so that was good. That was, uh, I feel like we learned not only about, um, we learned about the, the North Carolina sports. You answered the question perfectly. Oh, thank you. Gold star. Um, <laughs> let's return to these Cleveland baseball teams. I've uh, done, I performed some clandestine uh, searching on Fangraphs.com here, and I, I do actually have uh, much of the roster for that 2005 team, which is that. And here's some names, and, it, uh, and I'm saying this merely because it's a pleasure to remember these sorts of things a decade after the fact. Uh, Grady Sizemore, Travis Hafner, yep, yeah, who was a very interesting player because I think that he was uh, like a nothing prospect who 
uh, went on to have some strong peak years, if not necessarily much before or after that. Yeah. Uh, early early Cavelli Crisp, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yep. play, playing. I guess probably yep. playing alongside Grady Sizemore in the outfield. Yeah, I can't believe he's still around. He is still around. He's playing. Well, he's playing for Oakland, right? Oakland, in, yeah. And not well, maybe not a center fielder anymore, or at least not an everyday center fielder because he has a brittle body. Yes. Because he's in, because in baseball terms, he's uh, nearly an old man at this point. I believe that's the official baseball term. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, I don't know what version of Victor Martinez this is, but that's also one from over 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was... Sabathia's on that team. Um, well, I was only it, reading the oh. hitters, Emma. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, it's fine. You're right. He was. And also, which Cliff Lee is this who was uh, pitching so well for them? Mm. This is Cliff Lee that is still very much finding his footing and is a question mark and erratic and no one knows and, um, yeah, is about to become the Cliff, the Lee. Cliff Lee. Yeah. Which, when did that happen? Do you, if, uh, you don't have to remember it precisely because people can look on the internet. Well, he won the Cy Young in 2008, I believe. Okay. Um, so I, I guess, and really the year before that, he didn't do much. I think it was maybe then 2006 that he had like really started to show promise and maybe this could be something. Then was hurt and up and down for. Yeah, yeah, right. Didn't he have like a disaster? Right. He had a disaster year in between, didn't he, sort of? Yeah, yeah. And then 2008 was when he like really put it all together. Right. Because he always threw, at some point he began throwing lots of strikes. Because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in college, and I uh, do not remember the precise school which he attended. I'm guessing it was an SEC school. Let's say it was an SEC school. Uh, It doesn't really matter. I believe he did not throw many strikes there, is what I remember. And um, he he changed quite a deal to the point where maybe at some certain points before his huge breakout, he was throwing... I mean, you can never really throw too many strikes, but not the right kind of strikes, I guess. Yeah, that sounds better. Because I believe Jeff Sullivan wrote a piece, sort of a sort of a eulogy for his career, if not necessarily his life, because he's still alive. Um, But look, uh, essentially, just looking, uh, and it was a great chance to remember how he would just work almost exclusively in the zone with Cliffley. Yeah, he was just amazing to watch. That when he was at his peak, that was just. A pleasure. Yeah, and you, I guess, as a as a Cleveland fan, you didn't really get to enjoy much of that peak when he was actually on the team. No, not very much, but uh, enough. Right. Uh, well, let's see who else. Um, oh, another version of of uh, of Johnny Peralta. Yeah. This is before. Um, this is before I guess Fielding Metrics revealed that despite the fact that he's got a funny little body. Uh, Johnny Peralta was probably a good defender for a while. Yep, that was one that I'd like to say that I had been able to see coming and understood from watching him, but not at all. That was something that floored me the first time I saw it, just because I was so used to thinking of him as strange little chunky Johnny Peralta. Yeah, he does. He does have a a funny little body, but, um, and of course there were shortstops we had seen. I remember, for example, um, uh, well, Unieski Betancourt, uh, also had a funny little body. And uh, the metrics suggest that the eye test in this particular case was very correct. Um, but Baralta was a player who now did he, was he was he pushed aside in Cleveland or was that just in De- uh, just in Detroit? Uh, I think maybe the last year he was in Cleveland, but yeah, I think um, mostly Estrubal Cabrera had that lockdown when he was in Cleveland. 
Well, that's true. Had the, Cleveland has a, has an interesting recent history, and maybe I'm actually just discussing these two players, of uh, offensively talented shortstops with supposed, if not necessarily um, uh, verified, uh, defensive shortcomings. Yeah. That's yeah. an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how interesting, but it's reasonable. Uh, Ronnie Belliard, who looked a little bit like Manny Ramirez, except smaller. Yeah, never thought of it that way, but that's accurate. Mostly, mostly because of the braids, I guess. That's why, <laughs> that's why I'm thinking about that. Uh, Casey Blake, who Cleveland traded to Seattle mm-hmm. for a lot of people, I think. Shin, Shin Chu, maybe? Does that sound yeah, familiar? Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. Maybe, uh, Maybe a an in, another infielder whose name I'm forgetting. Anyway, I think it was a good one. Maybe Michael Brantley. How about that? Was he in that trade? I don't know. I'm just saying names of Cleveland players. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was. No, no. Um, anyway, uh, an interesting club. And so, so you follow. So you you got what most so most excited by these this Cleveland Indians teams. And then when for you. When for you did the leap happen to where you started asking the sort of questions that might best be answered by uh, by baseball analytics? That's another one where it's it's harder for me to pinpoint where the basic stats were always a really big part of the way I enjoyed it. Um, like from the time I was little, reading the box scores in the paper was something that I loved. Um, and just getting to understand it at that the very basic level of stats was something I really enjoyed. And I know by the time I finished high school, I was aware that there was something else there and beginning to look a little more seriously. Um, And I really don't know if there was anything specific that made me want to know things or that made me look, but I know that, you know, by the time I was a freshman in college, I was reading fan graphs and baseball prospectus and starting to really get into the weeds of it and trying to figure out not just looking at it to help me better understand, but looking at it to help me figure out my own things and mm-hmm. figure out questions I wanted to have answered. Um, but yeah, it's not, there's not really a satisfying answer to that. I didn't have. Now, did, what, uh, um, you said that it seems as though you've got most of your Cleveland baseball fandom by way of your father is how receptive is he, if at all, to what one might call, you know, advanced stats or analytics or this sort of thing? Um, I would say he is tolerant mm-hmm. he acknowledges that they have a purpose but he would never voluntarily use them okay all right yeah yeah that's that's not uncommon uh dads <laughs> dads are kind of <laughs> like that i believe actually uh i don't know if you're familiar with the internet uh but there is a popular uh, internet user named john boys of uh, sb nation yeah and i think he tweeted recently so what do you think is a dad's favorite stat line and i think it was something like to, like a 276 average with 11 home runs and a 996 fielding percentage. <laughs> He's like, those are definitely, those are the stats of your dad's favorite player. And uh, uh, there's a touch of genius in there. Yeah, um, that, I think. that's not wrong in my yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, I think that probably is just dads, dads love that. Dads are funny people. Yeah. Um, you have to love them though. You're sort of contractually obligated. You are, yeah. Earth. Yeah. All right. So you started to answer these questions. Now, uh, I know that sometimes I know, for example, in my own personal journey, Emma, uh, mm-hmm. my own journey, uh, one of the things, one of the reasons why I became interested in advanced numbers, 
was what is on account of the influence of fantasy baseball. Has that ever played a part in it for you? It has not, and I don't think it would be good for me. I think I would. I, I like having my fandom be sort of. I don't want to say pure because that implies that fantasy is something other than that. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't want to have my rooting interests conflicting in any way, and I. I also don't think it would be good for. Uh, I have somewhat of like an addictive personality. I don't think this would be good for that. I think I'd very easily fall into it, and even more so than I already am. I already spend probably more time than I should thinking about this and watching it and talking about it and reading about it. And I fantasy would only uh, add to that. So. Yeah, well, no, it creates a huge problem for allegiances. That's absolutely true. Um, because, for example, if uh, well, just not, Cleveland's not a great example at the moment because their pitching staff is pretty talented one through five. But who's who's the weakest pitcher on the staff right now? For example, uh, probably Josh Tomlin. Probably Josh Tomlin. Okay. So if you're uh, say you had, uh, let's see, let's pick uh, let's pick Alex Gordon. Say Alex Gordon of the uh, of the AL Central, also uh, of the division division. You know the Royals are in the same division. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're aware of that. So am I. <laughs> Barely. Uh, if you if you had Alex Gordon on your team, you of course you would want to start him against. You would want to start the left-handed batting Alex Gordon against the right-handed pitching Josh Tomlin. But then when Alex Gordon came up to bat, where where would your heart be, Emma? Yeah. Exactly. See, yeah. I I don't know what I would do, and I don't want to put that sort of conflict in my life. As someone with a um, with a somewhat intimate knowledge of academia, would you say that it would problematize your fandom? I, I would. It would make it problematic. Yeah, it would make it problematic. All right, that seems fair. Um, let's say, so when did you start writing then? As you've been writing for, uh, under the, what, the greater Fangraphs umbrella uh, for a little bit. Now you've been doing, you write this newsletter, mm-hmm. which which uh, should be mentioned. There's, is a, what, a newsletter that comes out on Mondays and Thursdays? Yes, twice a week. What can people um, find in that newsletter, Emma? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, there's some original content in terms of I write just sort of a 300 words or so on really whatever I want that seems to be of interest to me and hopefully to newsletter recipients. Um, on Mondays and on Thursdays, I have an interview with a Fangraph staffer. Um, so that sort of forms the bulk of it, that original content that's exclusive to the newsletter. And then the rest of it is just, uh, highlighting different fan graphs pieces from that day. Um, so that people who might miss them have a chance to see, you know, what's happening that day and, um, what's out there. So who have you interviewed so far? Have you, who did you talk to Eno Saris? Yes. I actually, I just started that segment and he was the first interview. Oh man. You had to talk to Eno. I wouldn't say had to. It was quite pleasant. No, that's, that's, what like I that's what I said. That's what I said. You can describe it. Uh, you can describe it as voluntary if you want. That's fine. That's very sweet of you. He knows. He knows. a strange man. Um, uh, but he produces a lot of content. That's uh, one cannot ignore that. And he does uh, some very interesting stuff um, with pitching and pitch grips and pitch movement, etc. Yeah. Yeah. What did he say? What did he say to you? Uh, well, I asked him specifically about pitchers that had had sort of surprising starts to the season mm-hmm. and what we could expect going forward, and that's what he went with. So, who yeah. Is, who, who, what can we expect going forward? Uh, I asked him about whether Noah Syndergaard's start was sustainable, which he said it was. Oh, Noah Syndergaard um, is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with you on that. Okay, fair enough. So, um, 
Uh, oh gosh, it's been almost a week now. It's hard for me to remember. Oh, Juan Nicasio, who had his really mm. good first start and really terrible second start, where he was going to fall with that. Um, Brandon Finnegan and Ross Stripling, who, you know, rookies with their no-hit bids, what we could see from them. So, yeah, good stuff for me now. Yeah, and who, el- who else? August? I haven't interviewed him yet. but Now, uh, would you say you're reluctant, maybe because you would feel as though you would feel like there was uh, it was two Clevelanders sort of conniving? You would feel as though it was too close? You know, I, I think we could probably do a fine job of hiding that from the audience. I don't think that would have to come out. But, um, well, now I they'll know. It. Well, that's your fault for yeah. outing it. Yeah. Sorry. My B. It's, it's okay. I, I think it'll be fine. That's my botulary. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about... Oh, wait. You also write for Baseball Prospectus occasionally. We're allowed to say that name on this on the program, just so you know. Oh, okay. It's okay. You're allowed to admit that you do that. <laughs> uh, you're just trying to... You're just trying to... Um, I think, what was it? Make that paper? Is that what you said? Uh, not what I said, but it, it's a phrase that I believe people use, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, on your on your route to wealth, um, part of that is you got to diversify with your jobs. And so, what do you do? What do you do for baseball prospectus? I do once a week for them the news roundup that they do every morning, the what you need to know. Okay. Um, so I do the what you needed to know Tuesday for Wednesday's um, morning. Do you ever communicate correspond with Sam Miller in the process? Uh, not directly, mm-hmm. but. Uh, oh, he has handlers. Yeah, I didn't expect it oh. would be directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he's, he's, I think he's considered divine in some cases, isn't he? Like an actual real, like a sun god, like a raw situation? I would believe it, yeah. 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 No, the you, I mean, in chief aura. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's a, uh, he's a very sweet man, if you ever get a chance to, to talk with him. Um, one thing you may have noticed, and it's come to my attention as well, is that a number of people... Who I guess who write about baseball um, in general, and then uh, probably deal with analytical writing specifically in baseball, uh, they have more. They do a lot more work with Y chromosomes than than X. They're not. They don't. They don't invest as heavily in X chromosomes. I guess um, yes. is what you would saying. And it's 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 no not at all. Am I asking you to speak on behalf of all women everywhere? Um, because that's a, it's not really a fair task. But I am curious um, for you, especially like dealing with knuckleheads like me, for example, or uh, Dave Cameron or anyone at Fangraphs, or the broader population, uh, what these specific challenges are for being a woman in sports writing beyond uh, merely just the, the normal challenges of being a sports writer in general. Yeah, well... Um... So I haven't been in this world very long. I've only been writing for you know, barely five months now. Um, and thankfully, I haven't really had any specific challenges in terms of, you know, it's definitely something I'm aware of. It's hard not to be um, when you're the only woman in the metaphorical room, the digital space. Um, but so far, everyone's been really supportive and kind. And uh, it's been great that the some of the other women who have, who are doing the same thing. Um, since there's not too many of us in this little realm, everyone's been great about reaching out and being kind. And that's been really nice. Um, and for a lot of other people, it seems like the higher you go up the ladder and the more visibility you attract, the more um, you get in the way of internet trolls and various, you know, 
insidious commenters and the misogynistic stuff that comes in there. And thankfully I haven't had to experience any of that yet. Um, and would prefer not to for <laughs> yeah. as long as possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I but, can tell you just from having like, and this is less of a uh, question of gender politics and more one of just a, uh, increased exposure. Um, I've had the opportunity now to write for Fangraphs for over six years, at least in, you know, in some capacity or another. And it is interesting what you say about the, uh, maybe the unwanted effects of increased exposure because at that point, you know, so if you're just beginning, you're writing a certain type of, of, of piece, you might be, you might be appealing to more of a niche supportive audience, right? When Fangraphs yeah. first started and, People were coming to the site. It was people who were very interested. Essentially, who had found their own way to it, if that makes sense. And then, you know, of course, the site has gotten uh, more popular and has reached more people. And th- there are certain benefits to that. Obviously, uh, some of us can become full-time employees, which is great. Uh, but then, of course, the, yes, the more the more people you're reaching, um, and the more that you are regarded by others, at least as an authority or a self-professed authority. Uh, then it, it increases the number of people who have not necessarily found their way to you, but perhaps they've been introduced, you know, from a third party or something like that. And it does, yes, it is a good way to invite people whose main interest is not necessarily a high level of discourse. Yes, that's and, one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, I'm sure that can manifest itself, you know, on any rough edge that you're in, in, Gender is is one of those rough edges where if people are looking to insult you, you uh, just to personally attack you. Being a woman is uh, well for some people. That's a, that's a, that's a means by which to do it. Yeah, and so I definitely don't want to imply that it's only women that this happens to, but I, it does seem, in my experience from what I've seen, to add another layer to the uh, variety of criticism and uh, type of uh, discourse that happens there. Um, but yeah, for the most part, my experience and it has been really positive so far. And it's been um, really over the past year or so, I'd say it's been really encouraging to see more and more women who are doing it and to see people willing to make space for them and, you know, create opportunities for them. Um, Cause you know, it was for long stretches of time for the past couple of years, it seemed that I could go months and months without reading um, like any sort of stats rating that was, done by a woman at all on any of the big sites and um it's been gratifying to see that change and to realize that you know i I still don't think it's anything close to perfect i think that there still needs to be more done to make sure that you know different perspectives and not just in the way of women i think there's also a really large leaning here towards uh white people and not many voices of color are included in this. And I think it'd be great to see more steps taken to change that as well. Um, but yeah, just generally speaking, it seems like there's, there's been some encouraging steps towards more diverse perspectives in the last year or so. Um, maybe small steps, but some steps and it'd be really great to see that keep going. Yeah. If I could, I mean, this is going to be a morons question. Um, but this is a field in which I am expert. Um, um, you know, figures over the years, and of course, like I said, like, you know, five, six years ago, it was basically, you know, it was just a, a website started by a dude, in that case, David Alpman. Um, and there were some of us writing for it, but I, I don't think any of us in a full-time capacity at that point, you know, maybe Dave Cameron. And, uh, we, we very much occupied an outsider's place in, 
the landscape of baseball, baseball analysis. Um, and that has changed, I would say, relative to, to the span of time, it's changed dramatically. We're, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the same sort of outlet as an ESPN or something like this. But I do know that, um, and I'm not really at the front lines of the, when we post for jobs, you know, for, for writing at the site. But my, my sense is that generally the majority of applicants are from, uh, are from men. And that also just from what I can, from what we know of the demographics of our readership, a lot of it is men too. Yeah. But at the same time, and so you'd expect those two just objectively, I think, you know, to correlate somewhat strongly. But I, but it's also the case that my guess is that fandom Generally skews closer to 50-50, uh, between, uh, between men and women. And I guess I'm curious, f- um, now you mentioned that you've been, you've been satisfied, you've been happy to see, to see more diverse voices in the course of the last year. Uh, I'm curious, I guess, what do you think, what would, uh, what would facilitate that, the sort of, uh, an even greater proliferation of that? Yeah, and I think it's tricky because the things that you pointed out, those are very real factors, and I would never want to see something like a quota system where people are being chosen just for the sake of filling a token role or anything like that. Obviously, you want to keep the level of discourse high. You want to be hiring the most qualified people for any position. Um, right, and I also want to be clear. I'm not asking – I'm I'm not demanding that you supply a uh, – um, what is it like a, an, an answer to end all answers too? It could be it could be very much you know based in your own personal experience. That's fine. Yeah, and I, I think part of that is realizing that that idea of who is the most qualified doesn't have to fit the same perception we have of like the, the sort of ideal for that. Like there that comes in different forms, and that it doesn't have to fit the same sort of narrow model that I think a, a lot of um, we've seen a lot of successful people we've seen in this field come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of finding that and seeing those different forms of qualifications and different forms of success and people who are, have really interesting ways of thinking about these topics and really different, interesting ways of writing is, I think part of that is um, being really open in terms of recruiting and reaching out to people directly. seems like it can have a big uh, impact. That's why I'm here. Paul didn't reach out to me directly after we interacted on Twitter, and then I started writing for the Hardball Times. Um, and I think that goes a long way in terms of just making it clear that you know, n- not just having a little thing at the bottom, that everyone is welcome, but going out and say we want you here. Right, we, right, like right. We're, yeah. we're yeah, we're interested in seeing what you can do. Like there is a space for you, and it, it you know, I I don't think that's a huge change in the way that people go about their business, but I think it can make a, a difference just in being explicit and saying like there is a space here, like the type of person that's here is the only type of person we're looking for moving forward and things of that nature. No, no, I think that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there is, I guess there's probably a leap between, uh, you know, sort of being nominally welcome and then actually being like, you know, specifically, I mean, of course, anyone like, you know, if someone comes to you and offers you a job, if someone comes to you and says, you know, do you, you know, do you want to do anything? There's a, it's hard not to feel at a certain level flattered by that and probably at that level more willing to participate, right? Because you feel welcome, actively welcome. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. No, no, I, I totally see the merits of that. 
Um, no, that's yeah, that's very helpful. And uh, um, like I said, uh, as someone whose imagination is not particularly broad, uh, it's helpful knowing even simple facts like that. Uh, even little things that just make it seem like, oh, like this can be a space for you. Like I, I've been uh, the first time I participated in like a Fangraphs chat. I don't remember who it was with, but that was. Uh, I think when I was a senior in high school, so like four years ago, and I never dreamed I would put Emma as a display name just because, like, granted, people use all sorts of things for display names. But, like, I had never seen anyone identify as a as female mm-hmm. in a in a fan graphs comment or, you know, in a chat. And, like, that, so that didn't even seem like an option to be like, oh, yeah, I'm me and I'm here. Um, and, yeah, so just things that make it clear, like, they are here and <laughs> I also want to, I was also like to be clear. I also think that there are too many men um, <laughs> involved or just the ratios. I mean, the sheer numbers is not really a problem. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's nice just to have a bunch of different people around. We've had, uh, uh, typically every year we've gone to, as a group, we've gone to Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, mm-hmm. the trip will be a little bit different this year, but, um, there's just a lot of dudes. <laughs> There's a lot of dudes, and, uh, and they're de- all, of course, delightful, all of them to the core. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, there's no, it doesn't hurt to, to have other sorts of people too. Um, uh, on to a, a much more serious question, full of gravity. Um, what is the topic of your paper that you have to finish for Friday? Uh, actually, it has to do with gender. Um, it's for I have a. The capstone class on the social and cultural history of clothing, and I'm. Ooh, that's pretty great. Yeah, it actually it's been very interesting. I've liked it. Um, and I'm writing about um, fashion shows put on by women's charity groups in the 50s and 60s. So like taking the idea that fashion shows at that time, like commercial fashion shows, were things that were done even though like women only operated as the models. You know, men were the ones designing the clothes, making the clothes picking out the clothes and deciding everything about the dynamics of that. And women were just there to stand around in the clothes. And these like charity fashion shows by women at the time, which were mostly like, you know, wealthy housewives of the fifties and sixties that you wouldn't otherwise think of engaged in any sort of like feminist action. But by hosting these charity fashion shows for their like gardening groups or like uh, bridge clubs or whatever, they were, you know, making all these decisions about how they presented themselves and how they cultivated their own Im- image and what that means and how that operates. Hmm. Well, good luck with that. Hey, you're taking this class. Uh, so I recently took a young man mm-hmm. to um, to get fitted for a tuxedo for a prom that is coming up. And I don't know if you've done any reading on this, but why does a cummerbund exist? I have no idea. I have no idea where the name comes from. I'd be interested in finding out. It's a silly... It's a silly piece of clothing. I agree. It seems kind of pointless. Do you get to use the word garment a lot during that class? Yeah, because you can only say clothes or clothing so many times. Yeah, you need some you need some synonyms. Yeah. A garment is a great word. It is. It's very underutilized in you know the day to day. How about apparel? Use that as well. Oh, I love that too. There are some great synonyms out there for clothes and clothing that people are not utilizing as much as they could. Yeah. So wait, did you when did, when did the, like in what period did the class start? You started start talking about togas. Uh, we didn't go quite that far back. We started at, like a little bit around the like Renaissance time period. Okay. Um, and then we but we the focus was more 
on American clothing. So we just did enough of that, like, sort of European prehistory to it to give a context for, like, what sort of situation American clothing was starting out on in the, like, 17th, 18th century, um, and then focused on that. Did you ever talk about the macaroni period? We did not. I'm not familiar. Yeah, I'm not really familiar either, but I definitely just brought it up. I think it was, uh, so if you go to, uh, if you go to old, let's see, Williamsburg, does that sound like a place that's in Virginia maybe? Yeah, I actually, I, um, I came very close to going to William and Mary, which there you is go. Williamsburg. Yeah. Colonial Williamsburg, yeah? Yeah. I believe you could there, or maybe it's the Smithsonian DC, either case, I remember, one time you can get, uh, um, you can get prints of old uh, – they're called macaroni prints. And there's these sort of caricatures. And I think it was a term used to describe a sort of uh, – a flamboyant sort. I, I've looked it up on Wikipedia, and it reads, a fashionable fellow who dressed and even spoke in an outlandishly affected manner. Oh, yeah. So there it is. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. Uh, we've gotten to the bottom of it. Is it yeah. something you identify with? The macaroni man? No, why? What is that? What are you implying? I, you're the one that brought it up. Bacha Larry. <laughs> um, no, they're, well, the prints were all over my house when I was growing up. Uh, my mom loved them and my grandmother loved them before that. And uh, I wrote a dumb short book and also the cover of that was inspired by the macaroni prints. Uh, but they were, they were dandies of some sort. And I think that they were based in, a, I think they might have had a UK presence, but I believe there was, they were also in the US. Um, and I was wondering if you came across it because I I rarely see mention of it, but it would seem as though in a class dedicated to apparel or garments uh, that you might come across macaroni fashions. But I'm also not very disappointed that you didn't, Emma. I, I kind of am. These look interesting. They're silly people. Dandies in general. Uh, dandies are great, too. Just as a word, dandies. Charles yeah. Baudelaire. You ever come across any Charles Baudelaire? Uh, not directly. Yeah, well, he's dead, but he was a tiny little Frenchman who was angry, and he was a he was a dandy at least for part of his life when he was on a like a fixed income from his aunt or something. Maybe she died, I forget. And then uh, Oscar Wilde, you ever heard that name before? I have. Old Oscar Wilde. Either the drapes go or I do, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, I think he might have been a dandy too. Mm, that yeah. seems to fit. Yeah, yeah. I think if people um. There's a lot of vanity associated with it too, but also uh, maybe a I don't know a love of uh, a love of life. The uh, so it's definitely another French term that goes with with it. I'm not remembering the term to describe the 1890s. Anyway, the banquet years or something like that. Um, so wait, so do you are are you stressed actively about this paper? Do you have to write for it's due in two days? Not really. I tend to do most of my work at the last minute, mm. um, which is a I've actually gotten quite good at uh, that over the past couple of years. Um, you know, I will. I will honestly. This will. This will be bothering me for the next, the next forty-eight hours. Uh, I'll be fine. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Yeah. It just seems like a lot of work. I mean, it it is, but I've like blocked off that time to do it. So I I don't have class on Fridays. So ah. after class tomorrow, I'm just gonna go sit in the library and. I mean, I'd like to at least come home. Thursday night, if not Friday night, technically it's due, she said, before she wakes up Saturday morning, so I have all of Friday night. Oh, you do, yeah. Yeah. What was so. the last all-nighter you pulled? Uh, last week. Oh. I I, but I, I've never really had an orthodox sleep schedule, so college has just kind of 
exacerbated that and made it worse. But it's to the point where now I'm almost used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think? But you know, it, it doesn't feel good when you pull an eyeliner because the next day you feel so strange. Don't you think, or don't? Yeah. You? I mean, I'm pretty good at like arranging it now. Where I actually kind of like that, like when you've made it through to the morning, you get to see the sunrise, and it feels like you've finally done it. And then if mm-hmm. I'm if I'm able to take a nap by like sometime in the early afternoon, I'm fine. If I have to actually function throughout the whole day, then yeah, I'm a wreck. But yeah, when I was at uh, uh, Columbia there in New York. I went through – there was a five-day period during exams, and I had had a very woeful academic uh, semester, and I was compelled to to, to um, complete four all-nighters in a five-night span, you know? And wow. then I had a uh, – what's it called? Like a personality break or something? <laughs> it's a psychological term, you know, when you're uh, – your whole your whole personality changes, and um, you have to go see like a therapist, you know? Uh, so I would just say try to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would. I would like to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Your whole your whole personality changes there. And, that sounds uh, unpleasant. Then your dad comes to pick you up, and he uh, he asks you a lot of questions because you don't you know, you're not acting like you normally are. <laughs> I'm just saying, Bachelor, watch out. Okay, I've been warned. I'll yeah. take that theory. But the, but you're in your senior year, and uh, it seems like you figured it out. Yeah, more okay. or less. I think also another thing you've done is to fulfill your obligation to the program. Uh, yes, it's been feel, a pleasure. Okay, good. You don't have to say that, but you can if you want. It has. Um, well, thank you, thank you so much, Emma. It's, it's, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. I will remind myself, I guess, and other people that you that you uh, composed for Fangraphs in addition to contributing periodically, I think, to the Harbaugh Times. You composed the the twice weekly newsletter, semi weekly. Yeah, I guess technically we can go bi bi weekly here, but I hate that because it can technically mean twice a week or. Every two weeks. Yeah, right. It can mean it can mean two things, both of which are similar but not the same. Exactly. Which is the worst kind of ambiguity. Yep. So maybe yeah. we should stay away from biweekly and your twice weekly. I think worked. I twice well. weekly is another. Yeah. So you can post that, and people can subscribe to that by going to fangrass.com and doing what then? Should they Google? There's a post where they could Google it. Definitely. Yes. Yes. And we've actually just set up like an archive page where you can read all the past ones and subscribe at the bottom. So, um, yeah. And that it contains original content. It does. Original content and the best of fan graphs. All right. The best of both worlds. Okay. We'll stick around for one second, but we were going, uh, we're going to say goodbye for the, uh, for, um, so far as the podcast listeners are concerned. So I will say, I will say, uh, thank you, Emma. Thank you. All right. Fair enough. That is Emma Bacholari. Uh, a, uh, I'd say a renaissance woman, uh, certainly a contributor to Fangraphs.com and also Baseball Prospectus. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.